Hello, I'm Nicola Garda. And I am Mariangels Ferrer, and this is Genetic Sounds. Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the European Society of Human Genetics. Genomics has moved to the forefront of medicine, and we all need to understand what's in it for us. How is genomics useful for my life and health? And how is it not? And what will the future bring? We propose this podcast with the aim to trigger conversations and debates across the society about the implications of developments in human genetics and genomic medicine. Welcome to our first episode of Genetic Sounds, where we are talking about could we all be geneticists? So in this conversation, we are joined by Anne Spirkland from the Institute of Basic Medical Sciences. She is Norwegian professor of anatomy and expert in molecular immunology. We also are having with us Gunnar Hoog, professor of medical genetics in the University of Bergen and ex-president of the European Society of Human Genetics. And we're also delighted to have Milan Masek, chairman of the Department of Biology and Medical Genetics, Charles University Prague, and chairman of the National Coordination Centre for Rare Diseases in the Czech Republic. I hope you enjoy as much as we've enjoyed this conversation. It's really wonderful to have you all here. And, and, and it's a good reminder of why we're here, really. And I think that's, we've all been talking as a team about a title for this episode. And is it helpful that we have this basic knowledge about genetics when we're thinking about the impacts that COVID-19 has had on us all? So I kind of wanted to start really with almost like looking at these COVID times and thinking about whether in terms of your kind of career, COVID-19 has been the worst or most significant healthcare crisis that you've experienced? Very, very easy to answer. This has been the biggest healthcare crisis I have experienced during my career. I'm 61 years old and I have never experienced something similar. A lot of people have died. It has affected us as professionals. And obviously the work of scientists during COVID-19, and I think this is the same globally, has been widely recognised, possibly in contrast to the politicians. And I just wondered if you could tell us something about the contribution of genetics and your own work in particular during this time and how you feel that has impacted in terms of during the times of COVID-19. I would say that the nation of immunology and genetics, which really has stood up as what will save us from this crisis, because it took only... Very few days before the sequence of the virus was that we had the sequence in place. It came, let's say, in 10th of January 2020, and immediately people started to work on the vaccine and also PCR primers for testing. Both of these two things came into place immediately. And, and since then, we have monitored the evolution of the virus very detailed and has made it possible for us to uh, understand that when we see resurgence of the virus, coming back again and again, it is because the virus comes in new variants and we can understand how these uh, mutations in the virus actually affect its ability to, to escape the uh, immune system, which has tried to. Thank you. It sounds like, and again, just from observing from a kind of a non-scientist perspective in the media, that you've almost been kind of changing the way that you've been working during this time because you've been sent into different directions or you're learning kind of, new things and I just wondered how this might have changed you or influenced you as a person like what you've learned from this experience in terms of a transformation or whether there's been any transformation at all 
You know, when, when this started, I must admit I was stupid in the beginning because I didn't really believe we would see a pandemic like the one we had one, one, 100 years ago again. So uh, when I heard the first news from China in December 2019 and January 2020, I was thinking, well, maybe this is, I mean, it could be something, but not as serious as uh, how it developed. And at that time point, I was head of department. So we had to repurpose our whole diagnostic pipeline to do COVID, which was, so one thing I learned was that you have to be able to change and change quickly. Um, and then uh, for personal reasons, I had to step down as head of department and move to Manchester. Mm-hmm. And that was not easy during a pandemic. I mean, the only plane that was going between Norway and the UK at that time was a small, uh, small pro- pro- propeller going to, to Aberdeen. So, uh, yeah, it was practical things, but it uh, worked well, of course. But still, I think uh, one thing learned is that you never know what happens. You have to be prepared and you have to be flexible. I am interested in maybe Guna about um, getting quickly to uh, to change because I, when I was yeah. hearing Anne talking about the sec- the sequence, then the vaccine, and then the ev- evolution of the yeah. virus, that happened. I know it felt like quickly. Com- yeah. You probably in in non pandemic times these things happen as well, but there is not such a pressure we need to put in in getting to solve uh, something like yeah. that for the whole population so uh, i'm interested in one thing is what you, your experience was but also the way you needed to transmit that to maybe your patients or is there some bit of a gap between what you experience and how do you need to communicate to the patients in your in your experience of course things are turned upside down by an event like this and uh, this also affects the relationship to the patients and mm. I work with with rare diseases and many of these patients, they really left alone during uh, this uh, pandemic because of uh, risk of infection and so on. And they didn't get the services that they usually get. Mm. So this this was a big change. And still, I think that how to handle a pandemic is not easy. And uh, it's very easy to know it afterwards. But when you are there and standing there, there were a lot of measures taken, not all uh, sensible maybe, but uh, it affected patients a lot, and especially the group that we handle in genetics. It sounds like, obviously, from a patient's perspective and, and also from you, you all kind of professionally and personally, that there are lessons to be learned from this time. And, and, and I just wondered kind of what, significant lessons you think you can take with you moving forward, Milan? In mid-80s, you know, when we were told in uh, microbiology that, you know, there's a strange disease which affects your immune system and nobody knows what it causes. And it was in 86 a big surprise for us because school to learn that it's a virus. And we thought, well, you know, viruses are all, all over the place and what's such a problem to identify them. And then we have, when we have seen what a I would say difficult and competitive race. It has been between, or had been rather, between the U.S. and uh, and France. Then you realize and there's a lot of to learn from virology. And in fact, this inspired me. And when I started in genetics in the uh, late 
1988 uh, after graduation. In fact, I started in molecular virology because that was the place where you learned molecular genetic techniques. And I even remember it was under the communist time when we didn't have access to, um, uh, I would say, modern textbooks or when we didn't have access to, there was no internet, no fax, whatever. It was all had to be delivered by official channels. And in fact, in virology at that time, that was the only place where they translated top U.S. textbooks into Russian and from Russian we translated it into Czech. Now it's completely different. We have internet. And in fact, as Gunnar, I have exactly the same experience as Gunnar. I work in rare diseases and in fact swine flu in, in 2009. I remember in June when it was uh, when the WHO issued the public health emergency warning. At that time, I was together with my colleagues in charge of the Czech EU Council Presidency, where we were really fighting very hard to get um, the EU Council recommendation on an action in the field of rare diseases. Oof, what a Euro jargon long term, but essentially it's a key recommendation which is used for rare diseases until uh, today. And we almost missed the date because in June uh, it was the, the public health emergency was issued and all of a sudden the commission changed their gears, the council changed their a direction, and we barely were able to to pass this um, uh, pass this important document for our diseases. And then later on, I was like Gunnar. I remember when the first reports came on SARS-CoV-2 that we said, "Oh yeah, this is yet another sort of swine flu, avian flu, whatever, somewhere in China, which will not spread that rapidly." Mm-hmm. And uh, we were really sort of taken by surprise when all of a sudden our skiers came back from Italy in early uh, 2020. They brought in, like to the UK, they brought in the first version of the virus. And all of a sudden, you know, we in rare diseases were propelled into it, as I said. I guess if you ask me about the experience, how it changed is that we used our experience in rare diseases when we are digging into the internet, when we use various sources, where we are almost like detectives trying to find out for our patients who are really rare and there were the scarcity of information to find whatever is out there. And I remember that we were asked by colleagues in mm-hmm. intensive care and even in microbiology if we could help. And I remember sitting almost overnight Googling, calling our friends in Italy, finding the early, I would say, posts from Bergamo, where the doctors were posting the initial experiences to what works, what doesn't work, and even translating online Google Translate from Italian to English and then from English to Czech because it's uh, you need to use this sort of three-pronged approach first via more common languages and then to the local language. And essentially, we were really like pioneers charting a completely uncharted territory where nobody knew what is coming. There was two camps. One camp said, well, this is nothing that serious. Come on, guys, you're panicking. The other one had, as we say, red eyes. And they thought, wow, you know, Ebola is coming on, uh, upon us. It's an incarnation of Ebola. And nobody just knew what's going on and everybody was panicking. So our experience in getting difficult information out from the public sources was very helpful And in fact, and also, by the way, we realize that we need to be humble, that modern medicine doesn't know that much when something new comes and spreads so rapidly. I think it's so interesting what you're saying about translating, because I think that's kind of a word that we can probably use for everyone across the pandemic is 
everyone's had to translate information, obviously at different levels and at different stages, but it's so important that that kind of translation has happened because that's how, if, if that doesn't work, that's how we get mixed messages and that's how confusion starts. And that's how kind of, as a society, what you don't know, you start to panic or when you're getting not direct messages. And it sounds like you guys have been going through that in terms of as scientists, but that's also mirrored in the way we've been feeling as kind of part of society dealing with the pandemic. I'm a teacher and before the pandemic hit, I had had an aim to be a good science communicator and I had written a book and a blog about the immune system. So I was well prepared to explain to the general public what was happening. And a lot of time spent with journalists to explain immunology, what was happening, why is this virus a problem for us, etc., uh, etc. Et I had prepared to be a good communicator and suddenly it was actually useful, really useful. So, yes. so <laughs> <laughs> You were preparing your life for that. Yeah. <laughs> and several churches uh, have been very active in Norway communicating uh, to the public. One of them as uh, official of the government and talked about variants recently. His approach was to talk to the general audience as he talked to patients in the ER because when he gets in patients coming to his infection department, he has to explain to these people who are not professional patients, now we are going to do this, now we are going to do that in a very simple language. And he took that approach also in the media and he became popular because people could understand what he was saying. I think I have had somewhat to say approach trying to speak in a very simple, normal language what is actually going on here. And even now, I, I can feel that role. So now I had this week explained to people that Omicron, you do not get infected by Omicron twice in a short time because that is not how immune system works. And people are so relieved to hear that because there's so much confusion still two years into the pandemic. Definitely. I really like this way you, you were talking about a minute ago, Milan, in terms of how you are detectives. And now I'm thinking about what you're saying and, you know, how do you know something and then discover something and then you need to translate that for the public, but also for you on your, yourself as professionals and also as, as medics, because you were saying how now the medical genetics is because of the pandemic is even more in the public domain. And I just wonder if you can, any of you say a little bit more of how you are noticing that happening, uh, that you can bring the knowledge from genetics to the public domain in a different way because of the pandemic. I want to say that, again, um, kind of amusing to put it this way, that, you know, before even the term PCR, few people knew it in, uh, in uh, not few, but I mean, in our profession, everybody knew. But even beyond our profession, pediatricians, uh, gynecologists, in fact, very few knew what PCR is. And even uh, what medical genetics is. Nobody even knew what uh, virology is. And in fact, we were quite complacent because not only ourselves in our country, but all over Europe and even in US. And you see uh, that you know people almost forgot that there could be uh, viral pandemics in the developed world. We also realized that in the public health and in hygiene, it was not attractive. No young colleagues went into the service. Uh, there were only people prior to retirement who remember even eradication of polio or TB and so on. So all of a sudden, uh, we as medical geneticists were the ones who were asked together with virologists, but there are very few of them, 
Most of them, in fact, work in the Academy of Sciences and are theoreticians. And we were, in fact, asked, what is going on? Can you explain us? There's a lot of genetics involved. Is it host response? Uh, what is PCR? And even we were asked about the basics. So uh, what helped us most is that we worked with rare disease patient associations uh, or with the National Alliance, that was even better, who had very good contacts uh, through their awareness raising activities in the past on the media. And I can tell you, it's uh, our main kind of take-home message was that you really need to work with the right people who not scandalize, who not uh, sort of make a tabloid story out of it, who really are asking proper questions, who ask you to authorize or what becomes published, right? So essentially, you really need to find the right, not only the right channels, but also you need to find the right people who are willing to listen and who only don't chase sensation. Because, of course, there still is a lot of clickbaiting in the media that you hear only scandalous stories or stories taken out of the context and so on and so forth. So we as medical geneticists are asked, hey, can you give us a real sort of vetted information? Can you sift through the fog through us? Can you help us? So, I mean, you need to start with genetics. And you also, and I guess we will discuss it later on uh, in our discussions, you need to dispel the worries about mRNA-based vaccines and so on. So right people, right messages, and, uh, and again, be humble. You are doing a public service because, unfortunately, a lot of our colleagues who especially work in basic sciences, they don't realize what medicine is about. And sometimes they go to the media and they speak theoretically, uh, I would say, well, but in terms of the application of their theoretical concepts into, let's say, clinical practice, uh, they have no idea what's going on. And, and in fact, this is our major struggle, to mitigate a theoretical view with the clinically applied view. It's so interesting because I purposefully, you've just mentioned the mRNA vaccine. I don't know what the mRNA vaccine is, and I purposely not look that up because I'd like <laughs> to hear from you what it is. And, and in the context of what we're talking about, why it's important that we should know about this vaccine or have some knowledge. I mean, it's, it's a completely new type of vaccine that has been the big success story of this pandemic, I would say. So mRNA is really the go-between between DNA and protein, and protein is what you, I mean, what you see. Uh, so the mRNA is, is a message. And the big advantage with the mRNA vaccine is that it's so flexible, so you can quickly change it and you can much more quickly develop it which they have done during this pandemic so um, that's one success story and I think another success story of this pandemic from a scientific point of view is the sharing of data so that started from the first days they shared openly data about this virus from the whole world which is extremely important and also genomic data so the big studies coming out now on um, genomic susceptibility to COVID uh, infection or who gets really ill is based on genome data from the whole world. I just really would like, this is a really beautiful mo point that you are, the way you are saying that, Guna, arrives to me with some peace or, you know, kind of you're saying this is the successful story and maybe... Of course, we are all influenced by the media. And I agree with Milan that we need the right people telling the right message, maybe in the right tone and in the right way. So when I hear 
you who know something about this vaccine in the way you're talking as a, as a success. Or it, it gives me some sense of, I don't know, peace or confidence or something yeah. like that. And I just wonder if you, you and all of you really, how this is for you, you know, the fact that you have this knowledge, is, is this making a difference in your, in your understanding of this pandemic and the way things are happening for all of us, but particularly for yourself and your services? From my personal point of view, it has given me an understanding of people that I really didn't have before, maybe. I think mainly because of, of, of all these people that believe in what we can call fake news today. I mm. mean, that has been very frustrating for a scientist to read about people that really deny science. That, mm. that, that's difficult. And it's also, I have realized how difficult it is, is to convince them to believe something else. To what Gunnar has said, um, I mean, it's quite topical. You realize that when you deal with various sorts of people, uh, only few really are listening to facts. So you're dealing with a lot of cognitive biases, uh, which the sociologists and psychologists uh, are discussing all the time in the media and point to them. But what you realize, and it's back to the leitmotif of what we are discussing now, people, but they like stories. And like the doctors learn on case reports, you need to show stories which are illustrative. And this helped us to dispel a lot of worries when we were presenting positive stories, but when we were open and when we also have shown uh, negative stories uh, and so on and so forth. So essentially a proper storytelling with right facts can make a change. At least that's our experience. Thank you. I, I totally believe this thing about the stories and uh, and the, pow- the power that the stories have for all of us. So I just think, yeah, if, if those stories are with real fact, they will really make a difference and it will be easier to understand. I think also when you have the facts, and you guys must know this, it makes the story easier to tell as well. Mm. So it mm. makes it easier to hear, but it's I know this from a, from a kind of broadcasting perspective that if I have the facts, it's so much easier to tell that story than when you don't have the facts. One thing is to distorting for an immunologist. There is a lot of complicated details. It is so, so difficult to communicate that many immunologists don't have at all a clue how to do it. My take on it has been to make stories or metaphors to explain what's the point. And when we talk about the mRNA, part of the population have been skeptical because it's new technology. But what it is really is fake infection. It's a piece of genetic information which is wrapped up so it's not uh, destroyed while it's passing through into the cells. And it is, this virus or this mRNA is handled by each cell taking it up as if it was a virus because the cells are really afraid of is genetic material in the wrong place inside the cell. A lot of mechanisms to detect genetic material. That is the beauty of this vaccine, that it is behaving like a virus without having anything of the dangers that comes with the virus. So it is useful fake news for the cell. <laughs> it's, it's a useful fake infection. Uh, <laughs> and then another point was what have we learned or what can medical genetics yes. um, benefit from what we have learned? And I think that one of the things which has become very evident, people have to deal with mutations and variants, understand the virus is immediately transferable also to medical genetics because this is about genetic variants happening in individuals depending on the type of variation. Sometimes it may be 
bad, sometimes it is neutral, or sometimes it may even be beneficial, but genetic variant, variations which gives medical genetic disease is very comparable to variations in the virus, I think. If you look upon the history of man, there has always been this kind of balance between our genome and infections. So many Man or women, the- Gunnar, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Humans. <laughs> Humans, sorry, just a joke. Yeah. Go, go, go. You, know, I, yeah. you can tell I work in DNI, so I'll even go to that next extreme. <laughs> Yeah. Well, anyway, so many of the the common genetic diseases today are actually a consequence of uh, us adapting to infections like, uh, well, common infections that we have to live with. And also, I think there are a few fun facts now about uh, this uh, COVID pandemic when it comes to susceptibility, because I don't know if you noticed, but the main risk factor for the severe lung uh, disease is coming from the Neanderthals. That's interesting, I I think. Since we are talking about men men and women. You know, the male sex is more susceptible to severe COVID than females. Oh, do you know how annoying that is? Because... (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I know, I know. But I (laughs) I mean, I can tell you a little bit about that because it seems to be related also to the Y chromosome because you have different Y chromosomes across the world. Uh, They call it haplotypes. Uh, And there are certain Y chromosome variants that give a high risk for severe COVID and others that doesn't. So why? They don't know, but they are studying this. And maybe there are genes on the Y chromosome. I mean, the Y chromosome has almost no genes, but some of them might influence the immune system and our reaction to COVID, possibly. That's interesting. We also know that COVID had the crisis of the COVID access to chronic health problems for people, and, and then that made it difficult for access to services, to a, a distribution of the resources in a way that is fair for everybody. Where do you see that? I don't know. You are been all of you working in different services, or maybe Anne, you've been talking to the public about that. How do you see that this the most? How the people with chronic healthcare problems because of the of the COVID had been affected the most in terms of accessing healthcare? Well, uh, if I should comment on that, I think uh, people with chronic diseases have many of them have been isolated during the COVID pandemic uh, because of fear of infection. And so, so maybe the psychological impact has been quite massive on many of these people. And if you, you used to be a GP, Gona, so maybe yeah. you can imagine the type of people you were visiting or you, you sat in an island where you're a yes. GP. So yes. if, if, can you imagine if you those people during a pandemic, how would they need to be taken care of? What would have happened to you in those circumstances? The the island is, of course, a perfect place to be during a pandemic, but in general... (laughs) (laughs) Well, it depends which island. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, But I think the the isolation, uh, really, and maybe more in the cities than out in uh, an island. Think about students, for instance, that have been confined to uh, their small uh, studios. So that's not so easy. Yeah, maybe unique can say something about you and your family and accessing services. To be honest, I mean, having a chondroplasia, I actually think I have a whole theory around it, which is completely unscientific. But um, I have not felt any more vulnerable with my genetic 
um, condition in terms of being susceptible to COVID. So, but I do know many others in the kind of rare conditions and disabled community that have felt extremely vulnerable. And I think Guna picked up on a really good point around the psychological effect yeah. that had in terms of isolating and kind of being kept out of a society because you feel so at risk. And I think mm. in kind of future, it'd be really interesting. And I'm sure there'll be lots of kind of studies and, and research around this and, and television programs actually as well, in terms <laughs> of how it's affected that community. Um, and also then returning back to a world that already didn't feel that accessible to you, but with mm. a slight kind of edge of vulnerability. So I think, I think definitely the psychological and social aspects But maybe if there is more clarity about whether people are really more susceptible to the COVID, that would have been easier for some communities um, that immediately were put in a higher risk just because they had another condition. And thinking about this, it's very Mm. difficult to say clear about what happened if they meet the the coronavirus. How how do you normally react when there is an infection going around in the society? Do you normally handle that? If if that's the case, then probably coronavirus will also be possible to handle. So I I have got uh, not, not very many, but some few emails messages sent directly to me with people having some condition of some sort saying me I have this I have this and what do you think and what should I do and then I start saying I'm not a clinician and I cannot I don't know but I can help you think aloud around this mm. and then I come some general concerns related to the thing they raise and what we generally know about how the immune system works. We have to build on what we already know and discuss it and hope for the best. I really like what you said that you invite them to think about what they already know and maybe make some decisions. It's really other level, isn't it? That you are not there only to give them advice or give them a clear solution, but you having a conversation with them and thinking together. It's really nice. Yeah, yeah. Thinking together. I would like to uh, also share the experience working with the cystic fibrosis community, which is quite strong here. And of course, obviously, CF patients who have chronic respiratory disease and chronic, in, uh, I would say, inflammation in their bronchial tree were really very worried at the beginning. And then you realize that the only way forward in times of uncertainty, when the virus is spreading rapidly, you need to have discussion for it, which, uh, for instance, should be closed for the time being to a specific community, such as, let's say, CF families, and which uh, should be moderated carefully to dispel uh, unsubstantiated worries and fears and so on, and also to compile first-hand outcomes of uh, infections in them. And then we realize that when we work together, uh, we are like one team. And mm. again, I use the term humble. We really learn to be humble to the patient experience and to working with them as partners and That was very enriching. And then in the end, we realized that at least for the time being, uh, surprisingly, the COVID-19 pandemic is not affecting them that much because a lot of their uh, large airways are obstructed and obstructed by uh, thick mucus. And it doesn't allow the virus to go down to the uh, lower airways and to the alveoli. 
So their disease, surprisingly, has not been that severe. But we really need to gather data from them and use uh, social media. Thank you, Milan. We are reaching the end of our conversation. And, and before we kind of ask you to be thinking a little bit about the future, I just would like to kind of highlight some of the words we've been you've been saying to us that catch my attention, like, you repeated in more than one occasion, Milan, this idea of being humble, this idea of working together, being practical and flexible and bringing the genetics uh, in the public domain or being more connected to the science and of the genetics also related to the, the politics, maybe the economics and the concerns that people have, but also something about working together in collaboration with families. And, and how your roles have changed. I, I, I've been very touched by how you also, whether you realize or not, you adapted very quickly in your roles from knowing about public. I, I like what you said, Anna, about working really in the public domain after writing a book, really having the, the practice of it through the COVID. I think it's just about, and we've kind of touched on it really, but in terms of what now would be your hopes for the future? Like, how do you see us going back to kind of, I don't know, dare I say, normal? Or is, is, there, is there a new kind of normal now? And kind of what happens next in terms of how we move forward and how we move on? I think that this pandemic has shown us that science is important. Mm -hmm. So my hope for the future is that this message will be clear in most people's mind. But science is important and um, we have to trust good science and not all these other sources of uh, news that you see today. So that's my hope. And that mm -hmm. would be important for the whole world. Not only science is important, but interdisciplinary science, I would say, because one thing is to use virology, medical genetics, but then you all of a sudden realize when you apply scientific um, outcomes to the general public, you need to speak to sociologists, you need to uh, talk to psychologists. And it really shows you that, um, first of all, I would say scientific knowledge is accruing quite quickly, but it's translation into public health is, is a different story. There you really need to be very cautious and also be uh, fair and say sometimes I don't know because uh, most yeah. of the time when you hear media stories, there are people who say, well, this is the ultimate truth and this is how things are. People don't realize that science is questioning and, and I would say questioning what, what is out there, what you know and what you don't know. So you really need to be honest and fair and work with others. I really hope that after the pandemic, uh, people in general will have an appreciation of what and the need for doing basic science to, to get answers to questions we don't know yet. My impression talking to journalists, the appreciation I receive from people when I meet them and I understand that I have been communicating so much in the pandemic is that people have started to understand that research is important. Over time, we gather information which make us able to, to come to some conclusions. I hope that we will take that with us further. I think uh, because uh, people now have experienced this pandemic for, uh, for two years, they have seen kind of um, development that is very illustrating for how an infection develops, for instance. I mean, the, the variants that come out, I know we have the Omicron, and maybe the Omicron is the beginning of the end. 
So maybe that's the way that nature kind of deals with this from historical times before you had any vac- vaccines. And then how uh, susceptibility affects who is infected and how severe they are infected. I mean, and then genetics is not important compared to overweight and bad health and so on. So this is has been maybe an eye-opener op- for many people to, first of all, to understand that we live in relationship with nature and we have to respect the nature. And we never know what happens. As it was said, science is uncertainty, but it, it's a way forward to understand the uncertainty. I really would like to ask you this last question, and which is, having been here today, having listened to each other, I know you are, the three of you are in this world where you are constantly getting new knowledge, but Has it been any little thing that you think it will stay with you from this conversation? It has everything to do with medical genetics, has everything to do with the pandemic also. Um, because if you broaden the scope and not think about the single patient and the single genetic problem, uh, genetics is the knowledge about DNA, RNA, the genetic material. And that has been incredibly important in the pandemic. Humans are kind of on the opposite side, but it's the same chemistry and the same rules which controls uh, the evolution of it. And I think just very quickly what I want to say before we go to Green Milan is what it's made me think about is we only think about genetics when it affects us personally. Mm. So when we find some news out or something in our life means that our genetic needs to be kind of discussed or talked about. And I think what's happened with the pandemic is that we've all had to think about it kind of globally, really, and it's brought it to the kind of forefront of the conversation. And it's made something that for many people might have remained invisible unless it mm. affects them personally. It's made it much more visible. So that's what I've kind of got from this. It's reminded me of that, this conversation. It's made it kind of, it's put it into that perspective. Well, I think uh, maybe what I take home from this is Milan's point about how to sell it, to put it that way. I mean, we can be scientists and geneticists and so on, but you also have to sell this to the public and the importance of that. And also to the patients to have this ability to, make them understand? I have to say the main message for me was to be open-minded and to realize that there's a lot of unknowns around you and that you need to be flexible, open-minded, and you need to work with the right people. And there's a lot of, I would say, uh, surprises, pleasant surprises out there. There's a, all of a sudden you realize there's a lot of thoughtful colleagues around you. There's a lot of, uh, let's say, uh, policymakers who uh, you viewed only in the media, but when you discuss uh, to them in private, all of a sudden you realize there are very nice people who are essentially presented in the media in a completely different way. And they are genuinely all of a sudden in times of crisis interested. And you also realize there's a lot of goodwill because, for instance, in the beginning of the pandemic, there were no uh, face masks, the FFP2. So all of a sudden people, even our colleagues, they took uh, the sewing machines out of the cellar and starting uh, doing them themselves. And they really were genuinely interested to, uh, to make a change. So I would say my main take home message is there's a lot of potential which is hidden, which doesn't get into the media, which go for sensation. And there's a lot of great people around you and a lot of uh, critical mass which you can tap into in a time of crisis. Well, thank you, Anne, Gunnar and Milan for this beautiful and interesting conversation. 
uh, I'm sure we all learn a lot. I don't know what about you, Nicola. Is there any particular thing that you like? I love the fact that we managed to talk about fake news. I didn't know that this episode was going to be an episode where we talk about fake news. So um, that was a really fun part for me. I, I discovered that I didn't know what a PCR was. So I, uh, I think I'm going to go and Google that and know a little bit more about. Definitely. And I felt that like that was something that, yeah, I don't think I realized it was used in other contexts. because It was the first time we've heard of PCR. So And so connected to genetics. Exactly. So no, that was real insight, actually, as well. Oh, well, thank you. It's been such a brilliant episode. And I'm really now looking forward to episode two. I've been Maddie Angels. I've been Nicola. And this has been episode one of Genetic Sound. And thanks for listening. This is part of the Genetic Sounds podcast series from the European Society of Human Genetics. Please listen to the other episodes in the series which cover COVID-19, gender, access to services, naming and data sensitivity and a special recording with a live audience at the European Human Genetics Conference. The Genetic Sounds series has been produced by the Whitworth Group.